0: Amen. Well, we are in the book of Revelation. Again, if uh, you're a first-timer, if you're a guest with us, uh, odds are high you might have opportunity this morning to immediately categorize us as one of those churches. Uh, Hearing what Marilyn just read, there's some weird stuff Uh, in there. Uh, It sounds strange. It's going to get stranger as we go through the book of Revelation, but we have nothing to hide here at Millwood Baptist Church. We preach through the whole Bible. That's why we're in the book of Revelation. We believe that it's all inspired by God's Word. It's all good for us. And uh, when it comes to weird, just wait till you get to meet all of our members. Uh, We're weird people, Uh, so fitting that we have such a weird book. We're going to be in the book of Revelation, and my goal is to try to make it as simple as possible. I'm not trying to win any theology Uh, battles, not trying to fit myself into anyone's personal eschatology beliefs about the end time, trying to make it simple, kind of trying to make it Revelation for dummies like me, 101. That's what we're shooting for so that we can understand uh, what's in there. To oversimplify, last week we were in uh, Revelation chapter 4, where John, who is on the island of Patmos on account of the Word of God, has been given a vision, he goes through a door in heaven he's given a vision of the throne and on that from from the throne are coming thunder and lightning around the throne are these weird animal-like creatures there's an emerald rainbow there's a crystal sea and everyone's singing and praising God specifically in chapter four they identify God as the creator of all things Lord, our God, the Almighty, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come, the one who has created everything. To oversimplify, Revelation chapter 4 is answering the question, when it comes to all existence, everything in the world, the answer, the question is, who's in charge? Who's in charge of everything? Who, Who made everything? Who created everything? Who's overseeing everything? The answer is God who is on His throne the Lord Almighty. Chapter 5, Revelation Chapter 5, to oversimplifies answering the question: what's the plan? What's the plan? You ever have difficulty discerning a plan? Maybe you've been on a date with your spouse. Just trying to figure out where you're gonna go eat can be difficult. Maybe you've been in a boardroom talk, not with my wife, because we never disagree about anything. Maybe you've been in a boardroom, at work, trying to make a plan for the next quarter. Maybe you've been in an HOA meeting. God has somehow punished you and sent you to be in that role. You've been in somewhere where you're trying to make a plan and discern a plan. Well, Revelation chapter 5 is really the beginning of the rest of the book of Revelation where we are beginning to see the plan roll out. We're going to begin to see who holds the plan, who is determining the plan, and what it's going to look like in the chapters to come. Revelation chapter 4, who's in charge of everything? That's God, Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We saw there in chapter 4, the throne referenced 14 times. It's a, just a little clue to us that that's a big part of what's going on in Revelation 4. In Revelation 5, we see the scroll mentioned eight times, and we see the slain lamb mentioned over and over and over. So, whereas Revelation 4 really was about God on His throne, Revelation 5 is about this slain lamb taking the scroll. What does that mean? Let's pray, and maybe God will... Help us see it in His Word. Father, thank You for Your grace to us. Thank You that You have uh, given us this Word. You are revealing. You are not concealing. So we thank You that You have made this known to us, that we might be encouraged, convicted, that we would be helped, that our minds would be enlightened, that our hearts would be strengthened, that our souls would be uh, emboldened, Uh, to walk with you, to trust you, to live lives that are holy, and to speak of your name wherever we may go. In all the ways that you know we in our individual hearts, do you know that we need help today turning from sin? Would you help us? In every way that you can look into our lives and see that we need encouragement, to to keep going, to persevere and endure in faith, would you help us? By your grace and your word, by your spirit, for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Marilyn read for us Revelation chapter 5 and we have this vision of the scroll, this lamb that comes to take the scroll. We need to figure out first this morning, what is the scroll? And I don't think that we're left without clues as to how the scroll works, uh, what kind of message it might be containing. The word scroll simply means biblion. You might even see it as book in uh, certain translations. But what I want to show you this morning is that generally there is a progression in the Old Testament that is similar to the progression of Revelation here in chapter 5, specifically two prophets that I'm just going to mention really quickly, Daniel and Ezekiel. Both Daniel and Ezekiel are given visions similar to John's. Both Daniel and Ezekiel see God on his throne, but there's a similar combination of events that I think helps us begin to look at what could possibly be in this scroll that John sees in Revelation chapter 5. Contextually, both Daniel and Ezekiel, two prophets of the Lord, are cast in exile in Babylon. Both of them have been removed from Jerusalem and are in exile in Babylon. And now John, in the book of Revelation, tells us that he is exiled onto the island of Patmos. He's been put in prison, as it were, on account of being faithful to the testimony of Christ. Both Daniel and Ezekiel both see visions of God on the throne, and they are extremely similar to one another, and they are extremely similar to what John sees in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Both Daniel and Ezekiel both see scrolls, both see books in their visions that are opened before the throne, that are being read, that are being responded to and Ezekiel's case, he eats it, which is another story, but he sees the saint, they're in exile, they see visions of God, there's books, there's scrolls, and the message that's in Daniel and the message that comes to Ezekiel is similar. It's a mixture of judgment and redemption, a mixture of God's plans for judgment and And redemption both Daniel and Ezekiel this includes both God's people and those who are outside of Israel so what do we think might be contained in the scroll that John sees in his vision my first suggestion is that generally it is part God's plan of judgment and redemption That's what's in there based on the prototypes of these kinds of visions in these kinds of contexts for God's people in the past. And the shocking news to the people of God from the prophets is that God's first message is not gracious salvation first. But righteous wrath poured out, in Daniel and Ezekiel's case, by Babylonian destruction and captivity. Israel, God's chosen and saved people, have been living in idolatry and wickedness for generations. And God would now, through the people of Babylon, discipline His own people. Ezekiel, in his case, would go on to recount, as part of the plan that he receives in the scroll that he is to go tell to the people, how from Egypt forward, there were many days when God was close but relented from destroying His own people. We don't have time to read it this morning. If you go back to Ezekiel chapter 20, it just marches through the history from Ezekiel to the prophets, you 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 abandoned me while you were in but you abandoned me while you were in the wilderness. I recommitted to you, but you abandoned me while you were in the land. I sent enemies, you abandoned me when the enemies came in. The prophets came and they preached to you, you abandoned the forgot the prophets. God was so close to cutting off his people multiple times. Instead he chose to just dis- Uh, to discipline them through Babylon. In Ezekiel chapter 20, he finishes this way, "'What is in your mind shall never happen.'" He speaks to the people of Israel. "'The thought that you have, let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone.'" You want to have gods like all the other nations want to have? You want to worship things that you can carve and put on your fireplace? God said through Ezekiel, that that you have on your mind, it will never be. I will never let that happen and maintain in my people. He continues, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 39. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Go serve every one of you his idols now and hereafter. If you will not listen to me, but my holy name, you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. In other words, God is saying, if you want to keep worshiping your idols despite my salvation, despite my provision, despite my warning, go ahead, but I will not tolerate my name with your being attached to your idolatry. So, judgment and cleansing is coming to the people of Israel. This is what it meant for Babylon to seize Jerusalem. This is what it meant for them to lay the city of Jerusalem to waste. This is what it meant for Babylon to destroy even the temple of God. God said, no more. Next is judgment, wrath, and cleansing. And yet, in this scroll, there's redemption. In Ezekiel's scroll, there's redemption. Look in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 13. If you can turn there, it's kind of in the middle of your Bibles. It should be on the screen. You can just listen and mark the reference. Ezekiel eleven thirteen through 19. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, O Lord, having heard the message of destruction, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? You just can wipe Israel off the face of the earth? Picking up in verse 16, "'Thus says the Lord God, "'Though I removed them from far off among the nations, "'and though I scattered them from them among the nations, "'yet I have been a sanctuary to them "'for a while in the countries where they have gone. "'Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, "'I will gather you from the peoples "'and assemble you out of the countries "'where you have been scattered, "'and I will give you the land of Israel.'" And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, a living heart, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God." No, I'm not going to cut off even the remnant of Israel. There is redemption in the scroll to Ezekiel. And so it is in the ending of what we see in God's plan in Revelation. When we get to the end of Revelation, we see Revelation 21. I saw a new, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem. Revelation 20, one two. I saw a holy city, John says, later, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be with his people. And God himself would be with them as their God. Not very different from what he said to Ezekiel. That helps us understand what Ezekiel saw, what John sees helps us to understand exactly what is in this scroll, this, this prominent document in chapter 5 of Revelation. What is this scroll? Similar to Daniel, similar to Ezekiel, and even others, the scroll seems to contain God's plan for both judgment and redemption. Judgment and redemption. The scroll contains the plans of the one who the throne. Chapter 5, verse 1, in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. It's in God's hand while He's on the throne, symbolizing that it is His, and the contents are directives that He owns. It's him. This is the throne's document. I don't know if this is helpful, but I, I think it is to say that it's kind of like the nuclear football. Are you guys familiar with the nuclear football? You know what this term means? A few people are shaking their head yes. They've seen Jason Bourne movies or something like that. In, in American terms, the, the nuclear football, the atomic football, or the satchel as they call it, or the black box as some call it, is that briefcase that follows the president around that has the nuclear codes in it, that has the nuclear contact in it, that has the nuclear procedures in it. And we probably will never know who they are, but someone is always near the president with that briefcase, with that process in their midst, so that in the worst-case scenario, they can allow the president to consider all of his options. Only for the scroll in God's hand, there is a definite plan. There's not just options here. There's a definite plan that's waiting to be accomplished. And God really only has one plan to accomplish. It's it's not a scroll filled with options. It's not a plan with, you know, if this, then I will do this. There is one option. And it is, I think, metaphorically speaking, the nuclear option. When it comes to judgment and redemption, when it comes to the scale of what's in this operation manual, as it were, in His hand, it's the nuclear option. Look with me in the next chapter, Revelation chapter 6. We're going a little bit ahead here. The, the seals in Revelation 6 are coming off one at a time. And we see that actually begin to represent things happening on earth at some point in history, which we're going to be talking about next week. But I want you to see that when this sixth seal comes off, I want you to see what happens. And just look and see how drastic, how far reaching, how overturning this seal is much less what is written within the scroll. Revelation chapter 6, look at verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I, that's John, looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Meteors and stars are going to fall to the earth like someone shook figs out of a tree. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth, the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb... For the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand?" The nuclear option, as it were, is the only thing in the scroll. Because when it becomes to take place, people are running, generals, rich, poor, everyone is made level. You can't afford a hiding place from this seal being taken off the scroll. There's not a general in the world that believes he can mount an army to overcome what's going to happen when the sixth seal comes off of the scroll. We're gonna talk more next week about what all of this means, but this is just to show that the scroll contains this nuclear kind of option, this redoing of the world this holistic plan, this global plan of judgment and redemption. those are the kinds of things that are in the seals and the scrolls and the bowls and the trumpets in the weeks to come. God's judgment mixed in with God's redemption. A full display of God's nature and His power released into His own creation. This begins to beg the question for us. How can I get out of the judgment and the wrath that the Lamb is going to pour out? How? How can I possibly escape God's judgment? If they're running for the hills, if this is so totally cataclysmic that no one feels safe, how can I escape the judgment of God and instead find God's salvation? All, Paul says in Romans, have fallen short of the glory of God. All the glory around the throne, all God's perfect moral holiness, we're all short of the glory in the emerald rainbow. We're all short of the glory of the seraphim. We're all short of the glory of the crystal sea and the throne and God himself. We're short that glory. We're like enemies walking. We're like Russian spies in the cold era walking into the Oval Office. Like, you're not welcome here. It's not your home. It's not your place. We're that kind of enemy to the pure, holy, righteous creator's Throne. So when his judgments begin to come out from his throne, when the seals are popped off one at a time and God is laying judgment on the earth, we all deserve it. Every one of us to the T. There's no man, there's no woman who is without sin before God. We've got to remember that Matthew told us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, It's not just good enough to go to church. You can't, just be, you can't just be religious. Jesus said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious perfectionist, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can't. Even they, that even that kind of righteousness, that kind of... Putting some religious fruit onto the poisonous tree of my heart does no good to gain favor from a holy, holy, holy God. Am I fit for heaven? Am I fit for heaven today? Will I go there tomorrow if I'm not fit for heaven today? Am, am I fit, would I, would I fit in the glory, the holiness, the righteousness, the moral purity that just emanates from and around God's throne? I don't think there's one of us can say, yeah, that's the kind of righteousness that I have in my heart. I've thought things this morning that the bouncer would keep me out for. My own mind, my own heart, even the things I refrain from doing, I think, and Jesus referred to that itself as sin. How can I possibly escape the judgment that's in the scroll that the throne and the lamb will pour out? The answer is in the one who has the authority to take the scroll and to see to its contents. We see next in chapter 5 that John mourns that there's no one to open the scroll look at chapter 5 verse 3 no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it with no one able to open it with, with the scroll simply remaining sealed up it's like an unaccomplished plan so, so, the question is who has the credentials? Who could possibly take on the execution of this scroll? Who could take on this plan? Who could exert that kind of authority? Who has that kind of power? Who could even bear the weight of that knowledge of all of those things? And if you go a few chapters later, we see John is told to eat a little scroll, a, a kind of a smaller side salad kind of a scroll. And that in and of itself is like getting shot in the gut with God's poisonous arrows. It's just, it's bitter. It makes makes my inside sting to just think about the plans in that little scroll. Who can take this scroll and and go up to God and say, yeah, here God, let me. Let me see to that. Let, Let me do that. The living creatures around the throne, these seraphim, cherubim-like creatures, surely they could, they could bear the weight of the plans of the throne. They're near the throne. They're there. They're carrying the throne in Ezekiel 1. Apparently not. I Maybe mean, it's the, the 24 elders, the council of the elders together. They, they could take the scroll and they could take care of it together. No, apparently not. Maybe the, all the angels, the myriads of angels who are watching in on the throne and overseeing what John is seeing, maybe they could take the scroll and they could open it and they could... No, there's not an angel in creation that could take the scroll. What about all the servants of God through time? Abraham, the father of Israel, no. What about Moses, the savior of Israel, the one who brought about the fire from heaven, The the one who brought about the miracles and overcame Pharaoh and brought down the Red Sea. The one who spoke to God as face to face. No. What about Daniel? What about Isaiah? What about Ezekiel? What about Zechariah? No, 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 no. What about Noah who built the ark and believed God when no one else did? No. What about Jonah who would go and preach to his enemies? No. What about Elijah who ascended into the heavens on a chariot of fire? No. No. What about David, the king who conquered the nations? No. This moment really is, I think, feeling the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The incompleteness of God's promises on the earth. We keep hearing in the Old Testament about the seed of Eve, the son of David, the prince of peace, the Christ, the Messiah, He's going to come, He's going to make everything right. But then we get to the book of Malachi, and there's 400 years of no prophets, no word, no revelation, just, it's like you got to the end of the movie, and it shut down, the theater shut down, and said, well, y'all got to come back later, and it didn't get turned back on for 400 years. Who can turn this back on? Who can pick this up? Who can accomplish these things? Who can fulfill all of these things? I don't get to play golf as much as I'd like to, but when I do get to play recently, I play with my dad at Salado and uh, Mill Creek Golf Course, and on hole number three or four, there's a par five, and right by the creek, there's this huge red house that was built years ago, While it was in the process of being built, Salado Creek flooded, which it rarely does, but flooded all the way up into, high up into the first level of this house. So for as long as I can remember now, this huge balconies everywhere, porches everywhere, multiple car garage, balconies on the second floor, big porch, looking out the golf course. It's just empty. No windows, no doors, no garage doors, just a big shell of a house. It's incomplete. It's unlived in. And that, that's the kind of sense that John gets. That, that kind of sense that when is this going to finish? Who can take the scroll? Who can build the rest of this? Who can see this to accomplishment? And there's no one. So John weeps. John feels the pain, the suffering. He feels the undoneness of God's pleading. You can hear the emotion of the psalmist yearning and pleading, begging God, How long, O Lord? Are you there? Have have you ever been there? Are we there now? God, who's going to be able to even do these things? Who's going to accomplish all of the purposes and the plans that you have for wrath for the wicked or redemption for the wicked? Who's going to do that? How's this day going to come about? How how are we going to get to even another seal, to the next part of Revelation? Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Only... To our surprise, can the slain lamb take the scroll? And the one, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What's this mean to us? Who who is this identified in in these kind of metaphors, these connections? The fact that this person is connected to the line of the tribe of Judah seems to take us back to Genesis 49. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is blessing each one of his children one by one by one. Telling them certain things about their lives, about their persons, about what God's going to do with each of them as heads of tribes. This is what Jacob prophesied, if you will, about his son Judah. Genesis 49, verse 8 and 9, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? That's going to be Judah. Who would dare wake him up? He's that kind of lion. And he's referred to here in Revelation chapter five, verse five as the root of David. Remember, David was himself of the tribe of Judah. he doesn't seem to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, it doesn't seem. David, however, was promised that his throne, in Second Samuel chapter seven, that his throne would go on forever and ever. There would be on his throne for eternity. The throne of the people of God would reign without end. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he's the Root of David, he was before David, he's the Root of David, and he has conquered. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the the Root of David, has conquered. Why is it so important that he has conquered? I love how Tom Schreiner puts it, breaking open this scroll is a matter of war. A great enemy must be defeated and thrown down for the scroll to be opened. A warrior is needed to conquer, to say, the scroll is mine. The fact is that left open-ended, it doesn't really say what he conquered. By that, it's actually saying a lot. What did he conquer? Apparently, his conquering was perfectly complementary to what's in the scroll, in the right hand of God on the throne. Apparently, his conquering fulfilled every credential, every requirement of what it meant to have the authority to execute the scroll that was in God's right hand. But the identity of this one who can take the scroll goes further. Chapter 5, verse 6. He sees him as a slain lamb and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which were the spirits of the seven that which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This just doesn't work like we think things work in the world. It's not it's not how things work in business and in governments and nations today where the wolves of Wall Street win the the government with the greatest military wins the government with the biggest economy wins the person with the better resume wins the job but not in heaven not before God's throne that's not how you can come and get this scroll Who alone can conquer in a manner worthy of the scroll? Who can conquer like the lion of Judah? Who can sweep across nations like the root of David? The slain lamb. That's how God works out his plan and accomplishes the greatest good that you can imagine. There is no lion like the slain lamb now is when the readers are are putting all the pieces together now now is when the the bells are going off in first century christian minds now now is when our our minds ought to be putting some final pieces together who who is the line of the tribe of judah who's who's the root of david who's the one who conquered who's the one who's slain I, i know him that's that's jesus that's jesus that's that's Jesus who was slain on the, on the cross like Isaiah prophesied. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That slain lamb, I, I know him to be Christ, to be Jesus himself. The Jesus that we saw on earth, the Jesus that we saw crucified, the the Jesus that we thought was being overtaken by Rome, turns out he is the slain lamb who is there with God in heaven. What was his loss here on earth, his crucifixion, is what made him worthy to open the scroll in heaven. His death on the cross is his worthiness to open the scroll there. There's a lot of ideas about what the seven horns, what the seven eyes mean through the Bible, especially in apocalyptic literature, horns tend to denote power through the Bible. Eyes tend to represent omniscience, the ability to see and not miss anything. But more specifically, this is referring, he says explicitly, he explains, this is referring to the spirit of God, to the seven spirits of God. The fact that the Spirit of God is sevenfold helps us understand that this was the full power of the Holy Spirit in and accompanying Jesus' life and ministry forever, that Jesus did not lack any part of the Holy Spirit. All the seven spirits of God, as it were, were with Christ and in Christ, were on Christ and part of Christ. Everything that Jesus did was an extension of the Spirit of God in His life. All of it. All the parts of the spirits of God and all the emotions of the Spirit of God, all the preferences of the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God Jesus preached the sermon on the mount, and by the Spirit of God, Jesus denied the temptations of Satan. By the Spirit of God, Jesus turned over the tables in the temple, and by the Spirit of God he welcomed children to himself. By the Spirit of God, Jesus welcomed prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, and yet by the Spirit of God he sharply reproved the Pharisees like a brood of vipers. By the Spirit of God, he cast out demons. By the Spirit of God, he would lay down his life on the cross. And yet, by the same Spirit, he would conquer death and raise from the dead. The whole perfect sevenfold and flaming Spirit of God was in, on, and with Christ, having descended on him like a dove at his baptism. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the only one with the Spirit of God having conquered the promised line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's the only one who could possibly take the scroll from God's right hand. You know, it's been depicted in all kinds of movies and books that nuclear football follows the president around ready to respond to any threat. Can you imagine that? that power, the weight of that power. When, when I grew up, people still wanted to be president. The more I read about it and learn about it, I just thought, no, I, I, I have other things I would just rather do with my life. Imagine just going to bed at night just knowing the fact that you could be awakened and that there's a guy in the other room who's got a briefcase and the weight of the world is gonna be on your shoulders to make some decisions here. And possibly very, very quickly. Just knowing that, just, just knowing that, living like that it crushes a man. Crush someone. But only Christ, who has been crushed on the cross and has risen from the grave, that slain lamb, could take anything like that on. That's what Jesus does. When Jesus takes the scroll from God's hand, he takes the plans of God's judgment. He takes the plans of God's redemption and he says, I'll see to it. And he has earned, if you will, this by what he has done. Look at what they say in Revelation chapter five, verse seven through 10. You just, can you just grasp now the meaning of verse seven? And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That exchange, it's all passed on to you, Christ. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, now that Jesus is holding the scroll and has it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Sermon next week. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, here's why, for you were slain, you're slain, you're you're being slain is why you're worthy to take the scrolls. And why were you slain? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Did you hear that in their song? They just explained what made Jesus so worthy. What made Jesus the one who could walk up to God and take the scroll of history and claim he could accomplish it and finish it and execute it. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open all of its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. Right there is the linchpin of all history. Once the blood of the Lamb, once the blood of the Son of God, the line of Judah, the Root of David, was supplied into the altar of heaven, then Jesus is worthy to take the scroll. It's saying that the payment of blood, the, the blood of the Son, the blood of the actual pure Lamb of heaven, that payment of blood to secure sinners like me and you is God's way to bring us from judgment And that Jesus is the central factor. His blood spilled on the cross is the central credential that allows him to oversee the unfolding, the unrolling, and the unsealing of God's judgment and redemption. At the center of all God's plans for judgment and redemption, the executor of God's plans is the Lamb whose blood is spilled to save sinners from death and separation from God. The end, as it were, was not to begin. The scroll was not to be unsealed and begun. The end was not to begin without the purchase of God's people by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why he takes the scroll. That's why he's worshipped. Continue reading, chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who is slain, the slain lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing angels, those creatures that are so powerful to knock down nations at a time, those creatures that when they show up, everyone faints and falls to the ground. They all cry out, the lamb is worthy. The slain lamb is worthy of wealth and wisdom and might and power and glory. And then look at verse 13, the worship of the slain lamb expands and expands and expands and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. You see, the same structure that we saw last week in chapter 4, the throne, the scenery, the characters around the throne... But it culminates in the worship, the jubilation, the exaltation, the declaration of who God on the throne is. And this is how chapter 5 ends. What's the meaning of all of this? Where does this all go? Where does the scroll being taken by Christ actually go? It ends with worship. It ends with exaltation. The glory of Jesus Christ has no end because of his crucifixion for sinners, his authority to raise from the dead and to see to God's plans of judgment and redemption. Because of that, every creature, every creature in heaven and on earth, it says, the the meaning of those living creatures the littlest bug you don't even notice walking in the grass on the way home today. The fish in the sea that we haven't even discovered yet. The eagles soaring overhead. The ox and the mammoths and the giraffe. I know mammoths don't exist anymore. The sparrow singing in the trees. In everything that exists in every Realm In every dimension, Jesus is glorified forever with God on his throne for dying on the cross for sinners and taking the scroll from God's hand to see to it. What can you do today but prepare for the wrath of God to be poured out? By believing in the slain lamb for the forgiveness of sins. We have a very simple promise in the Bible. That if we would come to God and confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. That if we come and confess our sins to him, he will forgive our sins and we will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. That's the promise for believing in Christ, this slain lamb, You may be caught up today in what's going on in the world. Sickness and war and strife and division. You may be caught up in the anxious things of your house, caught up in the worries of your workplace, caught up in what's going on in traffic. Be caught up in what's going on in heaven. Be caught up in the reality of heaven. Be caught up in the reality of the throne be enthralled as the creatures around the throne by the blood of Jesus being spilt for sinners like me and like you. What Revelation 4 and 5 are ultimately showing us is that we have this reality that we're enjoying on earth, the things that we see, the things that we touch, the roads that we drive on, but this reality, this apocalyptic, this revealed reality Seen through the door of heaven is the center of all the realms of reality. In heaven and on earth, most especially here now. At the center of history, the code for unlocking history, the code for executing all of God's plans was a slain lamb for sinners. That was God's central plan for His glory. Trust that Jesus Christ was crucified for your sins. Trust that if you are following and trusting Christ, your sins are now forgiven. Trust and rest that if you're trusting in Christ, the the lamb slain for your sin, then you'll be saved from the judgment of God, Christ having received that for you by his death. Rather than be swept up in the wrath of God, you'll be counted in the people of God. Keep obeying God When the world tempts you to leave him into sin, remember the throne and the lamb slaughtered who took the scroll, who holds time and history in his hands. Keep paying the price that comes with following Christ. The lamb has suffered. The lamb was slain. He now stands in heaven, scroll in hand, overseeing the execution of God's plans for judgment, God's plans for redemption. Keep paying the cost. For being a Christian, keep speaking up about Jesus. The world may not see him. Sometimes in our own lives, we we, we don't see him, but through his word, we see who Christ is, where he is. Keep speaking up about Jesus. Keep telling people about Jesus. Test your own belief in this reality of who Christ is by speaking up about him. Don't fear anything that's frightening. Fear the wrath of God, but fear no wrath of man. The Lamb was slain to ransom people for God, and the Lamb now holds the scroll. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, and pray that you would help us have eyes to see and ears to hear that as we have prayed your word and read your word and sung your word and We've heard it preached today it would have its effect on us. We trust that it never returns void, that you can use this word like water to grow, to help us endure, to help us make different decisions about our day today, have different hearts. Father, would you help us be grateful today, leave with grateful hearts for what is in heaven for us? What has been accomplished through the blood of Christ for us? I encourage you to take a moment on your own, reflect in prayerful meditation what the Lord might have for you today, how we might repent, how we might obey, how we might leave in response to God's word and faith. Thank You, God, for this Word. Thank You for uh, the good news of Jesus Christ for us. Help us to walk in faith, obedience, repentance uh, with You today and this week. We love You. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.